All right, well, this morning, return with me for what will be the last time to Matthew chapter 5 as we look into the first 12 verses known as the Beatitudes. We have had three previous weeks in which we've been reviewing the Beatitudes, so today marks our finale, and hopefully the series has been helpful to you, and if not, then maybe today will be the final message to maybe be helpful to you as we look at the Beatitudes to maybe make some changes that we need to make to have 2023 be an outstanding, successful, wonderful year. The Beatitudes has allowed us to see the truth of the theme. Remember, the theme is the Beatitudes are a map of life, a series of directives helping us on our journey with God. So we have two more this morning. We have done six of the eight. We leaves only number seven, number eight, which is found in verses 9 through 12. Rather than recapping all the previous six, we will wait to the end for the conclusion to do that. So stand with me this morning as we do to return to Matthew chapter 5 one more time and read the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. It says in Matthew, Matthew 5 verse 1, Jesus speaking, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Father, Lord, we do come before you once more, Lord, having read this text now for what will be our final week of dissecting it. And Lord, I'm just thanking you for how the prior weeks have allowed us to understand better the Beatitudes and to maybe see how they can pertain and apply to us in the lives that we live. Yes, they were spoken by our Lord many years ago, but Lord, they still apply to us today. So be with us now, this morning, once again, as we return to the text and look at the final Beatitudes. We pray, Lord, this text would speak to us. We better understand it, of course, but it will also speak to us to see how we can apply that to our lives today. So let's be thankful for what we shall learn and how we shall apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, as I stated just a few moments ago, we were going to focus this morning on the seventh and eighth beatitude, again in verses 9 through 12. So we're going to immediately return to verse 9, which begins our portion today of the seventh beatitude, and we read it once more. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And we should note, first of all, that a very casual reading of the seventh beatitude commonly leads to misunderstanding of what Jesus is truly saying. Leroy Lawson, in his commentary, observes that this is the beatitude we love to misunderstand. We tolerate many intolerable situations because we say we just want peace. But Jesus does not say, blessed are those who desire peace, but blessed are those who make peace. So the question with that comment maybe becomes, well, who are those who make peace? 
And the answer is given to us in the text in verse 9 because it tells us it is the peacemakers. The peacemakers is the ones who make peace and thereby then become the key word in the verse. Now the Greek word for peacemaker is extremely hard to pronounce. I'm going to try to pronounce it. I probably will totally mess it up. It's irenopios. But it equates really to just the Greek word meaning anybody, any person who working to bring about peace. Every translation you might review and look at, whatever your favorite translation, it probably says in this verse, peacemakers, except for one translation I found, which simply says it's those who work for peace rather than peacemakers. But we still go back to the thought about who or what is a peacemaker. The Greek definition, of course, is any person working to bring about peace. But I'm looking at that thinking, that to me, that's just a little too generic. Any person going about working to make peace is just a little too generic. I mean, does it mean that those hippies out there at Woodstock who is promoting peace, does that make them a peacemaker? I don't think so. Or does it mean that the Secretary of State or the President, when they have two conflicting nations who are at war with each other, like Ukraine and Russia right now, and they move to be able to have a peace treaty, does that make them a peacemaker? I don't know. Or what about a marriage counselor who's seeking some reconciliation or peace in the marriage that is falling apart? Well, maybe. But I need something with more teeth besides the generic definition from the Greek word, any person working to bring about peace. So I looked up on some other commentaries and I found MacArthur. MacArthur turns to Matthew chapter 5, which also is in the chapter we're looking at, but a little further to verses 44 and 45. You can turn there if you want to, or you'll look behind me. Because the text tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 and 45, Martha's liking, he said, By saying to you, our Lord speaking, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. MacArthur looks upon the verses, but then adds his comment. He says, These verses plainly teach that God's love extends even to his enemies. This universal love of God manifests in blessings which, which God bestows on all people indiscriminately. Theologians refer to this as simply common grace. So MacArthur then was suggested the peacemaker is one who certainly can love his or her enemies. And he would add this love without discriminating. It is grace. Robert Gardner in his commentary on the book of Matthew would concur. As he states, the peacemakers embody Jesus' striking call to break the cycle of human violence, and pursue the way of love. Which really then is grace. So as we hear these comments from scholars, and as we look into the definition of being a peacemaker, maybe the next question to ask ourselves is this. Would you label yourself as a peacemaker? Or are you going about your life promoting the love of Jesus into this world? Or as MacArthur pointed out by looking at Matthew chapter 5, the verses he kind of likes, are you loving your enemies? Are you praying for those people who persecute you? 
who harass you, who annoy you, and who may bully you in some way? Are you praying for them? Are you loving on them? That's a pretty tall order when we start thinking about our enemies and the people that sometimes annoy us or harass us or try to persecute us. But maybe we should think of it in the terms of forgiveness. Because it's hard, listen, it's really hard at times to forgive a family member or friend, let alone even an enemy or someone we despise. But the simple truth is here that our Lord Jesus tells us he's actually instructing us to practice and to go in peace. I mean, Jesus appeared to his disciples and said, peace be with you. And he was known as the Prince of Peace. So suffice it to say then that Jesus was all about peace, promoting peace, fostering peace, encouraging peace and love to all people, not just a few, but to all people, even then your enemy, to those who may harass you, who may persecute you, who just get on your nerves. But this fact then, should not be confused as we learn about what it makes and makes sense then to be a peacemaker. It should not be confused with being a pushover. He's not saying you need to be a pushover or you need to be passive. I mean, Jesus, while promoting and encouraging peace, he was really not a pushover. He was really not passive in the sense you may think about it. He was often involved with confrontations. He regularly had confrontations with the Pharisees. Even at times, and like in Matthew 23, referring to them as whitewashed tombs. So Robert Mouse then takes that consideration and he explains that the peace that Jesus enjoins, the ones that we should be doing, is not a passive acceptance. It's just whatever comes along. But an active involvement that confronts the problem and works through to a satisfactory, satisfactory reconciliation. I think Mounts has some key elements in what it takes to be a peacemaker. Again, it's not passive disposition, not to be confused in any way with being passe or passive in any sense. It's not isolating one and just meditating on peace, but rather being involved in a peaceful, loving manner to directly tackle the problem and the issue, whatever it is to work through to a satisfactory, peaceful solution. Simply said, a peacemaker goes out into the world being exposed to everyday life and its problems and works persistently for peace. Leroy Lawson comments that peacemakers search for the best in other persons. They admit their limitations and are slow to find faults in others. Hesitant to condemn but quick to understand a brother's weakness. The peacemaker offers grace and forgiveness in place of vengeance. Yet he is bold enough to stand against evil, disciplined enough to insist on order, compassionate enough to even embrace the guilty offender. Look at what Loss is saying again. This is what he says is the characteristics of a peacemaker. They know the limitations. They're slow to find faults hesitant to condemn, offer grace and forgiveness in the place of vengeance. Is that you? 
Are you a peacemaker? Or maybe we need to rephrase and rethink of the question differently. Maybe the question that we can ask ourselves, similar but different, is do we see evidence of peacemakers today in our world? Now, as you start thinking about that, my immediate answer as we're putting this together for this morning, do we see evidence of peacemakers today? Was no, not so much. Because if I turn on the news, I don't regularly see people who are peacemakers. I hear about all the confrontations that exist today, arguing, bickering, fighting, picketing, protesting. I mean, the news is filled with people having confrontations over things like politics or sports, the police, bullying in schools, school shootings, racial injustice, and many, many more. And then as you see all these things, it always, always, or so it seems to be always leading to violence. It was an amazing, eye-opening moment, week before last, when we had a Walmart 30 miles to our south that had a former employee to walk into the store, get his gun, go into the break room, and seek out other employees. I was thinking that, what is wrong? Where's the peacemakers? The news also told us how California, along the same week, in just a matter of a couple of days, had three mass shootings. On the news over the weekend, probably Friday you may have heard it, even then today, they're still talking about the city of Memphis, who had five police officers to brutally assault and kill a 29-year-old black man. I have kids on the bus. Twice this year have brought knives on the bus. I have other kids on the bus when I tell them to sit and behave, if they have a confrontation with other students, when they send me, my mom said I could hit him. I said, your mom ain't on the bus. Sit down and be quiet. But their mom, their parents give them permission to fight. I mean, what's wrong with the people today? Everyone, it seems, resorts to violence rather than wanting to become a peacemaker. Referring to Lawson once more, he said the world needs Christian peacemakers. Prospects of an all-out nuclear war horrify peace-loving people everywhere. He said the world is well on its way to destruction, with instruments of annihilation piled even deeper in the weapons stores of hostile nations. Otherwise, normal human beings dedicate themselves to finding sure, and clever ways to wipe each other out. This neo-cannibalism infects even the most advanced civilizations and threatens a revival of savage barbarism. Warmakers are everywhere. Where are the peacemakers? That's the question we'd be asking ourselves. Where are the peacemakers? Where are they? We start thinking about it, everything we see all too often is not people who are making peace. It's making war. It's confrontations. It's having conflict. It's having violence. So perhaps you take all that consideration, maybe it just means the seventh beatitude is one we need to promote and speak more loudly. I mean, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So with the increase of violence that we see today, 
The Lord needs, the world, the world needs more peacemakers. Not pushovers, don't get me wrong. Not people who are passive, but peacemakers in the way we defined and understood this morning. We need peacemakers. The world needs peacemakers. And I suggest to you that we as believers and Christians, then we are the people who've got to stand in the gap. We must become peacemakers. We must become the people, not just desiring peace, but making peace. As Jesus said, we've got to turn the other cheek. We must make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now look at that last bit of that particular beatitude. It's the seventh beatitude in verse 9. But look at the expression as we become peacemakers, we also then will shall be the sons of God. I mean, what does that mean, the sons of God? I mean, Jesus is speaking, and I thought only Jesus was the son of God. So why or why does he use the expression sons of God? I got thinking about that last week as well and found a comment by Robert Mounts who said the sons of God refer to those who by acting as God acts bear a family resemblance to their heavenly father. Well, shouldn't that be all of us? Shouldn't we all then be peacemakers acting as Jesus did, bearing then a family resemblance to our heavenly father? I mean, of course we should all be that. So then let us go into the world understanding what it takes to be a peacemaker, be called the sons of God, and have a family resemblance to our Heavenly Father. That is the seventh beatitude. And now we come then to the last beatitude in verse 10, which says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At first glance, it looks as though this is not the last beatitude. Of course, verse 11, it seems to be one more. In fact, some scholars and commentaries suggest and label that verse 11 is a ninth beatitude. However, verse 11 really is just an extension of the eighth beatitude in verse 10. Look at it again with me. Verse 11 actually essentially reminds us that we will be facing, as we live our lives on planet Earth in a Christian manner, we will be facing some type of persecution for the way that we live. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. Notice how the verse suggests and states that we're going to face times of name-calling, mocking, ridicule, and insult. We may even be despised for what we believe, that we are different. Maybe even blackballed, not allowed, or neglected, or abused in some way. Now here's the thing about it. It may be subtle to us that people are actually against us in that way. And we may not even recognize it. But it does exist. It, it, if this is the case, and it might be that not if this is the case, but when this is the case, perhaps we should remember then the Lord stated, if they hate you, they hated me first. In John 15, 18. So although we may be persecuted in the form that we have it today, the mocking, the ridicule, the name-calling, the abuse, it is actually mild in comparison to the early days of Christianity. 
I have a devotion book in my office that kind of puts it in perspective. It says, in the early days, lies were being told, being spread about Christians. The Roman government feared them, the early Christians, because they spoke about a Messiah and refused to recognize the emperor as God. The persecution of Christians was so bad that they ran out of wood to crucify them. What a horrible time in Christianity where the persecution was so intense, so widespread, that the Romans were running out of wood to crucify the Christians. Cannot even imagine the pain, the agony, the suffering. But Peter did. I mean, Peter knew the agony and the pain and the suffering. He knew it well. And often spoke about the opposition that they would face and that we would face. And the suffering and persecution that would exist in our lives. He told his readers of his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He said, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And yet further, he offered encouragement to those under the trials, under the persecution. In chapter 4, verse 12, he said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is, tr is to try you, as though some strange thing is happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I mean, it's hard to think about that when we are in the midst of name-calling, ridicule, abuse of some kind, it's hard to think about the fact that we should be rejoicing in the name of Christ for receiving that because we simply believe and have faith. It's hard to think about that. But the word is that we should find it a blessing and should even be rejoicing in the midst of persecution whatever form it may be because the truth is as we live our lives as Christians as we live our lives as believers nobody suffers in vain and the beatitude the eighth beatitude rightfully declares blessed are those which are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now regarding the persecution and the kingdom of heaven and even rejoicing, note as we go further into the text in land number 12 now that there's a little bit added to this last beatitude. Again, the emphasis here is to be rejoiced and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Which just means in verse 12 basically means just as those great faithful believers before us who lived before us years ago, we also then will face a time of persecution and suffering for Christ. And because of all that, when we have that that happen to our lives, that affliction, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. It's very strange to actually say that. It's actually strange to actually practice that. Especially as a non-believer will watch you in life. That when we're facing persecution and suffering for doing what God requires, that we can rejoice. It's strange that a person would actually be rejoicing when they're being persecuted. 
If somebody calls you names, ridiculing you in some way, you can rejoice. I mean, why can you rejoice? Because it brings comfort and consolation to you. Because you know that in the end, your reward is the kingdom of heaven. Or simply say that the reward in heaven, being the presence of God, is so great. John Corson actually paraphrases and summarizes these words. Jesus' words in, the, in these verses by saying, Happy is the one who is persecuted. You are joining a great company, the company of the prophets. And indeed, you will have profit in heaven, exceedingly great reward. When you face persecution, some sort of suffering for Christ, great is your reward in heaven. It may be mild in comparison as we think about what happened to the early day Christians, but we still will face some suffering. And when you're facing the suffering, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. That's what this last few verses, as we wrap up the summary of the Beatitudes, tells us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the last Beatitude. That really concludes then all eight of them. But this series of messages pertaining to the eight Beatitudes, perhaps not only do you understand them better, but maybe you found something in the last three to four weeks that there's something that I need to prove on to help me throughout this year to make this year a better year than the prior year. As I've mentioned numerous times in the past several weeks, the Beatitudes are a map of life. Look upon them that way. They're a map of life. There are a series of directives helping us, helping you on your journey with God. I like the words of D.A. Carson, who says, Clearly, the values set forth in the Beatitudes are fundamentally different from those of the central areas of modern life, education, technological development, or military might. The astonishing thing, listen to me, the astonishing thing is that many people believe because they are vaguely familiar with them actually think they are more or less living them let me say it again the astonishing thing is that many people because they are vaguely familiar with them actually think that they are more or less living them but then he says cheap familiarity has robbed the aphorisms of their force meditate for just a moment upon carson's comment because what we learn with the Beatitudes is clearly different than what the world is teaching us. The world's not looking for peacemakers. They're not looking for meek people. They're not wanting you to be pure in spirit. They're not wanting you to have these characteristics and things. So it's drastically different than what the world will teach you. And teaching our children, by the way. So this comment, Carson's comment, just meditate upon just a moment. But also let Carson's comment not apply to you. Do not be vaguely familiar with the Beatitudes, but rather know them, practice them, and live them. Notice again, as we put them back up on the screen, they are eight in number. We talked about how they're a map in life, a series of directives to help us in our journey. Do you know them? Are you living by them? Are you practicing them? Because we should know them, not vaguely, but know them well enough for to practice each and every day. 
So let us conclude and look at them one last time. The first one tells us again to be poor in spirit. Again, we talked about how poor is not economically not economically disadvantaged, but poor in spirit being depending completely and totally on God. When you have a decision, when you're in a crisis, go to God to help you through the crisis, to help you make the right decision. And that way, be poor in spirit. The second beatitude told us, remind us that allow God to comfort us in a time of grieving and mourning, both for those when you've lost a loved one close to you, but also because you know that you have sin and that you have the sin which grieves God. And that way, God will comfort you. The third beatitude said simply to be gentle, be loving, be kind-hearted, be meek. It is not weakness. Just be meek. But enjoy satisfying days while you're on earth. The fourth beatitude reminded us to be hungry, to have hunger and thirst for God, and to be filled. And remember, do not let your appetite fade away. Always seek God. Hunger and thirst for Him. The fifth beatitude, practice mercy and forgiveness. Be compassionate to others. The sixth said to seek a pure heart. Cleanse your soul. You cleanse your soul by pouring out your heart to God. Hey, God knows everything that we've done. There's nothing that we can't do that God won't forgive us. Pour out your heart to God. And then finally today we look at number seven. To seek and make peace. We learn today to be a peacemaker. So we can be called a son of God. We must imitate the Father. Referring one more time to John Corson, his commentary, says being a peacemaker does not mean wearing a peace symbol, marching against nukes, or marching for whales. He says, I suggest to you the finest peacemaking activity in which you can engage introducing people to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. What happiness is there that can compare to the joy of seeing a friend, relative, or neighbor open his heart to Jesus? Again, be a peacemaker. And finally, recognize how blessed you are when people curse you, mock you, persecute you for simply being a follower of Christ. For your reward is the kingdom of heaven. That's our eighth and final beatitude. Lawson offers a fitting conclusion is that Beatitudes abound in paradoxes. When we ask Jesus what we must do to be happy, he reply, his replies puzzle and confuse us at first. He says to be poor. He says be meek, be hungry, be thirsty for righteousness, be in mourning. The last and perhaps the strangest of all, be persecuted. You should not only accept persecution, but persecution that comes because you have done Something right. So look at your life. Are you doing something right? Are you living the life that God would approve? If so, great. We all need to be living lives that God would approve. If you're not living the life in which God would approve, then hopefully the last several weeks of looking at these eight Beatitudes has, has prompted you to make some sort of change to make sure your life is a life glorifying God. Because in everything we do, we need to be living a life that is imitating the Father and bringing glory to Him. Paul was right. 
when he said in Ephesians chapter 5, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you can be imitators of God, I can assure you that you're practicing the Beatitudes. Be imitators of God. Have a family resemblance to our Father. Father, and we do thank you, Lord, for these messages we've been looking at the last several weeks, the Beatitudes, as we call them. We pray, Lord, that as we look upon the Beatitudes, it's not that we leave here today just vaguely familiar. We leave here today, Lord, very familiar, understanding them, but also not just understanding them, but actually today putting them into practice. Lord, I pray for each of us today that if there's one thing that we need to change in our lives, Let's go about making that change today. Let us leave here today with a life imitating you and bringing glory to you in everything, everything that we do. So we're thankful for what we learned the last few weeks. We're also thankful for what change we can make now. We love you, praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.